Hello and welcome to East Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about And Then There Were None, yes. the 1945 version. There was one from 1974, I think, as well. An adaptation of Agatha Christie's novel, which is Variously Owners, And Then There Were None, and Ten Little Indians. And it also had an original title that was more offensive. Yes. It was changed. This is another Agatha Christie that I was not familiar with, didn't know the story, had never seen an adaptation, never read it. Like it was with Murder on the Orient Express, which we saw a couple of versions of back mm-hmm. when we started the podcast. So I was thrilled to discover, you know, what it's about and what happens. You familiar with the story? I, do, I don't. I've not seen it before, right. but I think I am familiar with the story because there was a television series of it on BBC a couple of years ago. So, so I'm, I was familiar with the story a little bit, but I must say I found this dull. Yeah. It's, it's on the dull side. Yeah. <laughs> this is directed by uh, René Clair. Who is a hugely famous director. There was a period in the 1930s where he was widely regarded as being, you know, one of the great directors in the history of cinema. He had done a series of films, particularly uh, Sur le Toit de Paris or En Anou la Liberté, which seemed to free the camera yeah it's like mm. you know you have the camera kind of panning up and down streets of paris yeah in in the courtyard and you know the it was like a dancing camera really mm. and it was also a musical yeah which seemed to go for yeah from apartment to apartment to apartment it was very inventive and kind of dazzling and then of course during the war he moved to hollywood and in hollywood he did a wonderful film uh, with Frederick March and Veronica Lake called I Married a Witch. Right. Yeah, which is a fantasy. <laughs> mm. uh, and you could see a kind of skill in this, yeah? I think so, definitely. Yeah, the way the camera moves, the way the shots are planned, you know, the keyhole sequence, yeah, mm. and the way that that's patterned. But it is also weirdly tone deaf. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's tone deaf to language. You know, it's tone deaf to rhythm and both the rhythm of speech and I also think the rhythm of situation. Like a little, well, I mean, the rhythm of situation is much better at. Yeah, that lovely sequence where there's a keyhole and there's a keyhole and there's a keyhole. Yeah, mm. that has a kind of a, ryth- a rhythmic timing. But certainly in terms of speech and performance, I think the film could have been better. Yeah, because it, it's a film that has a sense of humour and it has funny lines of dialogue. And some of them are delivered well and everything, but but there is something that's lacking about the way that all feels. Yeah. The dialogue, the way it's delivered. And most of the actors, as you said halfway through the film, are not giving good performances. You know, you said at one point, when the butler's giving the most charismatic performance, you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we have now grown so accustomed to seeing these Christie adaptations as all-star mm. vehicles, yeah. Death on the Nile, Murder on the Orient Express, and so on, that it feels odd to have a whole film cast with supporting actors. <laughs> yeah, there isn't, there isn't a star, a proper Hollywood star of the period in the whole cast. The person that comes closest to it is Barry Fitzgerald, yeah, who enjoyed a moment of fame uh, playing the priest to Bing Crosby's singing priest in, I forget what the film is called, but he won the Academy Award 
for Best Supporting Actor that year. Going My Way. Going My Way. And he was nominated that year as a supporting actor and as a Best Actor. Mm. So he had his moment. And I think this might have been an attempt to... Capitalize. Capitalize on it. uh, Or certainly offer him a chance to lead a cast. Mm. But as you can see, he's no star. Yeah, the person who comes closest to it, I think, who does give a charismatic and, you know, slightly theatrical, you know, but but one that keeps your eye is Walter Houston. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who who, who the was patriarch jo- of the Houston acting clan. Yeah, that's right. John Houston's father, uh, who is who is, I think, very charismatic. Yes, yeah. yeah. So but he's the only one. The rest of the cast. I mean, there's C. Aubrey Smith, who's always fun to watch. Right. There's Judith Anderson, who I think is also fun to watch, mm. right? And she's got her moments. She was Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. Um, but, you know, the whole cast is name-supporting actors. Some of them, uh, like C. Aubrey Smith and Judith Anderson and, indeed, Walter Houston, with strong kind of personas and, and greatly skilled. And some of them just kind of blanks, right? Like mm. the two that end up as a couple, yeah, 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 are like you know as boring as cinema gets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there's something. I think there's something worth exploring because, in a way, why those Agatha Christie films need stars is because there's no characters, right? So you know the star persona brings flushes out the character. Yeah, what you know what's not in the novel or the script. Mm. Right, you know, the stars bring to it. And actually, when you don't have stars, there's nothing much there, right? And there's nothing much to look at. It's all plot, really. I kind of know what you mean. I'm not sure I entirely agree that they that they need stars for that reason. or that, that You're right that stars do bring that, you know, that you bring like, oh, it's Brad Pitt or whoever it well, might be who's in Think one. about Nice it, Out. Every time you see the star... You you already have a memory of what the star is normally like and what they're presenting themselves to be like at that yeah. moment and their short, impactful roles that really, I think, rely on that recognition. Yeah, but I think part of it is actually is that these films are... I think they appeal to stars because they give them a chance to play. Because actually, the film is not reliant on one single star. You know, the star in, in most films is... The whole film is on their back. Mm. And actually, that's that's be probably pretty stressful. You know, and in a film that's an ensemble murder mystery like this, like Murder on the Orient Express, they get to play amongst other things and it probably frees them up a bit. Because I think actually, if a film like this doesn't have the top of the top stars, it just it has good character actors, but people giving good performances, then they will bring out those elements of character and and frivolity or whatever it might be and charisma. Only if it's the just role a, only if the role offers them that. Well, I think the roles here don't and don't. I do think the actors aren't good enough for them either. Well, I mean, I think there are some fantastic actors, but I think actually Judith Anderson is a case in point. You know, see what she can do in Rebecca, mm. right? Where you know the role is written with kind of so many layers and nuances, even though it's equally brief. And see here, where she's, you know, what is she given to do? What is yeah. she given to play? Nothing, right? So we're you know, not a million miles away. Like I think, I think with good actors who aren't necessarily stars. I feel like this can really, really work. But a, a stars would add something, you know, because you, they, they are spectacle in themselves. Your eye is drawn to them, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, there's a reason why they become stars. And also you do know a lot about what they've done before, you know, their extracurricular life, and you can flesh out a whole kind of thing that the, the role itself doesn't necessarily need to have there. I think it's true, for example, as well, you know, in Knives Out. Yeah, like if you... 
if you see the Chris Evans character, right? Mm. You know, I mean, as a so it's given a lot of plot and you get a lot of information about the person, mm. but it's not a character with many layers. And really, all of the fun is in the way that in Chris Evans and in, in, in the way that Chris Evans plays it, but also in that it's Chris Evans playing it. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. I do get what you mean, and I think that does bring a lot. You know, your expectation of the style, the way that they will play against type or with it. You know, that's certain something, but I don't think it's actually a pre prerequisite. Um, it's nice to have, and there's a, and the, and there is a reason why these films become these you know the, these star showcases. Mm. And as you said, like you know when you watch the the old Agatha Christie's, Mildred on the Orient Express, and the old uh, Death on the Nile, it's about you know and 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 now we go to this person, and now we go to Roy this McCall, person. Sean Connery, Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah. So that's I mean, a pleasure in itself. Yeah, it is for sure. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a delight, and it's missing here. And obviously the producers didn't think very much of it because, you know, I read in Wiki that it was one of those films, and it's a pretty big-budget film, it's a 20th Century Fox film, mm-hmm. Yeah, the copyright was left to lapse, which is paradoxically <laughs> why it was hard to get a hold of a copy. I remember one of my exes said, well, you know, would you have this? You know, I've been dying to see this for many years, and, and I couldn't get a, a hold of it, really. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I finally did order a copy, I think from Spain or whatever, and it came really murky, even worse, you know, than what Mubi is showing, which is not the greatest version either. Not the, not the most amazing transfer, but it is available on Mubi. So I guess maybe we should say what it's about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. so these uh, eight people have been invited to show up to this. Uh, it's a house on an island. It's completely isolated. It's real kind of, you know, you're locked in and... It's just these ten people. You have to work out who it is. So it's eight guests plus the butler, the butler's wife, who's the maid, mm. and they've been invited by a Mister U N Owen. That's how he signs all his letters and things. And he quickly kind of transpires that this Mister U N Owen is actually a. It's unknown. Yes. And they've all been summoned there. A gramophone record tells them because they're all responsible for murder, mm. be it someone they've actually murdered or someone they've let die through inaction or perjury things like that, they're all responsible for people's deaths. Which is a pretty interesting way to start it off. And after that, people start getting picked off one by one. And there's mm. no escape, the boat isn't coming back to pick them up, it's just them on this island. Is there someone else doing it? Is it one of them? That's how the thing develops. So it does make you ask the question, you know, who's doing it? And I was going, is it the cat? <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's not... I don't think it's very suspenseful. I don't think... You're given much information. I don't think the choices of who gets killed off first are done very well. You know, you keep the most the dullest actors, you know, alive for the longest. <laughs> Big mistake, yeah. right? And I also think there are kind of moral and ethical dimensions that would have made the film more interesting. Have they even been raised? Right? Like, is this true? You know, how do we know that this person has really killed off her sister or whatever? You know, it could just be hearsay, right? Like, and you could make interesting dis- distinctions between, you know, the character knowing for sure, but the audience doubting, or, you know, the audience knowing for sure, but the characters bringing it up mm. as a get out, right? There are interesting things. There's the point kind of halfway through the film where the remaining characters sit around the table and, and have it out, essentially, and mm. say, you talk about their own histories and how true those mm. allegations are. So it approaches it at that point. But it could do more with the level of suspense. And I suppose it also 
it was quite obvious that you know this had to be connected, right? Like it's not just it's not a coincidence that all these people have this murder accusation about them, and they've all been invited to show up here, and they're all getting picked off. It's all connected somehow, and that's what the film's mm-hmm. inviting you to speculate on. And so it does work it out, you know, when it, when you eventually find out who is doing it and why. It makes sense ultimately, right? That's the thing I like that you know. Well, there's a logic to it. Yeah, there's a logic to it. It's a but... bit. It's a bit rudimentary. It's a bit. I mean, like you know, at the end of uh, Murder on the Orient Express, which we won't spoil here if you don't know it, but I didn't know it before I'd seen it. Mm. And then you know, when you see it, you come to realise this is one of the great endings of mm. a murder mystery story. Mm. You know, and kind of very well known and, and renowned. And there's a reason for that. And this doesn't have that level of invention. No, and it's interesting because it is written by one of the great screenwriters of the classic era. It was written by Dudley Nichols who wrote uh, some of John Ford's most famous films, but also, you know, some of the really entertaining films of of the 1930s, uh, Skyline, Judge Priest, a big hit with John Ford, uh, The Informer, also with John Ford. He wrote the classic She, yeah, which was then remade with Ursula Andrus. Uh, He wrote The Three Musketeers, The Crusades for DeMille, Steamboat Round the Bend, you know, he did several films for Catherine Hepburn, including Mary of Scotland and Bringing a Baby. He wrote Gunga Din and, and, and Stagecoach. I mean, these are like just some of the classic, mm. you know, uh, uh, great films of the period. In this time, uh, he wrote uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, a big hit of the period, Government Girl with Olivia de Havilland, another big hit. Uh, and then immediately after this, the Bells of St. Mary's with Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman, one of the great hits of the era, right? Like, mm. not just of the year, but of the 40s as a whole. So, a really skilled screenwriter, not only, you know, a writer of entertainments, but a writer of, like, you know, socially significant uh, cinema. So, this feels, you know, the combination of René Clair directing, written by Dudley Nichols, it feels like, to me, a real disappointment, really. And the dullness of it is a surprise because it is visually inventive. You can see, you know, where René Claire is coming in. And if you compare it to I Married a Witch, which is so sophisticated, you know, and so funny, right? And it kind of, it's high comedy. It requires like a likeness, mm. you know, of touch, right? So I wouldn't have expected on the basis of having seen that American film of his, to him being kind of tone deaf here, mm. which I think it, the film is tone deaf in terms of speech patterns and you know the way that you could get humor out of just you know vocal rhythms, mm. things like that, uh, and certainly you know to achieve some consistency amongst the actors, right? Like it's clear to me that he doesn't have an ear for that. Maybe it comes from working in a second language. Yeah, and yeah. of maybe not knowing English well enough, and yeah. you know, and so on. Who knows? Um, but I do think it's it it, it looks quite elegant. It you does. Know? It's it's shot and edited quite elegantly. And there, I was really struck by the shot where the uh, the two of them are coming down the stairs towards the end, and they're going out towards the beach. And so they come down the stairs, and the camera pans down, follows them, and then it goes on to the statue of the the China Indians. One mm. they keep breaking every time mm. someone dies, and you go ooh. And then I thought the shot was going to end there, you know, and then it would cut to them being outside. But no, the camera then picks up and pans over to the window and you see them outside, they see the dead body. Mm. You know, and she screams. And, and it's a really, like, it didn't need to do it like that, right? They could have just cut, 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 right? Mm. And actually, it probably saved time because, you know, you as long as you get that shot right, you do it a few times, you get it right, then you cut out a load of 
setups that you would otherwise have to mm-hmm. do, right? So it's kind of elegant and probably efficient, you know. And there's a, there's a feeling to that throughout the film, really. There isn't anything kind of visually that's that feels unnecessary or out of place, right? And I like the way that things are staged. I like the way that characters are placed around the scene and that there's mm. been care taken to place them in interesting places or visually appealing places, like right on the edge of the frame. There's a bit where there are three characters, this is right early on, there's a bit where a couple of characters are talking and one of them turns away. And as he does so, two other characters who are also wearing black coats turn away. So you've got one going left, one going right, and one going straight ahead through a door. All just... You know, exiting the frame at the same time, hmm. just nice little elegant. It was almost a joke, you know. Hmm. It was just a nice little thing. Um, there's there's quite a bit like that. So yeah, it is. I mean, you know, fans of René Clair, you know, or admirers of René Clair would not want to miss it. Yeah, because I think kind of visually, it is full of flourishes, right? Like when they go on the beach and you know, you see the dead man's feet before and mm. actually you're not aware that it's his feet until you become aware. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the bit where they're voting and the butler leaves, but he doesn't leave. He stands behind the window and he's still yes. there. And, it, and then the camera does come to draw attention to him. It cuts to him and he comes back in. So it's not like he's just hiding there just for the audience to see. But he's at the start and it's nice that like he's left, but he hasn't. He's hanging around. Yes. Um, I think we've been, uh, or you have uh, been very elegantly avoiding uh, an important uh, historical factor, uh, and I think uh, we shouldn't because I think it's all right, you know, to refer to it when when it's referring to something like this. So, you know, the the original novel was called Ten Little Niggers, mm-hmm. right? By the time that the film was made, you know, they were obviously already aware that this was highly inappropriate as a title, and in fact. All of Agatha Christie's novels are really imperialist and, you know, oriental and so on. Yeah, mm. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, I I, I grew up loving them and so on, uh, you know, but I think, you know, just because one loved them doesn't mean that as soon as one gets older, one is blind, you know, to all of those things. So uh, it was never the U.S. title. Though. The U.S. title was and then there were none. That's right. You know, well, you, uh, yeah. What I'm saying is that <laughs> even by 1945, yeah. you already knew you couldn't name a film like that, right? No, no. But it says here in, in uh, the um, the novel was published in the UK in November 39, and then in the US a couple of months later in January 40, and then it was, and then there were none in the US. Well, so I had a title change immediately. Immediately. Well, obviously, you know, uh, well, good thing then because yeah. that is an entirely inappropriate and racist title. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in the context of the US, even more so, but, you know, because mm-hmm. at that point, I think the UK, I believe, didn't have, you know, a considerable uh, percentage of its population being black people, whereas the US did. So, you know, that would already have created, you know, mm-hmm. incredible conflicts. Mind you, the way that the film solves it is not much better. Yeah, because what we see in the film. And I think this would raise, you know, a ruckus now, certainly kind of in Canada, uh, is it's replaced by Ten Little Indians. Yeah, you know. that's what the UK title of the book was changed to as well. Yeah. Right. And then, but, you know, the Ten Little Indians that you are shown, yeah, they are not like small children from India. <laughs> they, are, they are Native Americans, right, with mm. all the feathers and all the cliches, you know, that a lot of uh, indigenous people in North America find at least as offensive as black people would have found the mm. term nigger. You've so, changed one form of racism for from a, another. One one that you slightly prefer. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, one which will, at a particular moment, would have uh, uh, made you less liable to be called a racist, even though you clearly were one. <laughs> yeah. The title, it all comes from a song. It's a children's song, and they sing it throughout the film. And it's important to the, to the story, yes. because it's about, about these kids. They die in various ways, and that's reflected in how the members of this household, the, the guests at this party, die. Mm. Um, so it, it becomes relevant to the story. And the title, and then there were none, and the way it's used, is inoffensive, I think. Mm. But it's but it's that way that like it's the way that sort of you know like your grandparents or even your parents in this country like they used to have a gollywog yeah. toy as yes. they were a kid. And they're like, there was nothing wrong with it, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. you were a kid, so you know, I forgive you, but there was something wrong with it. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, it's a little bit like that. Like, oh, we used to sing ten little niggers when we were kids. It's like, okay, but you don't have to anymore. Yeah, you know, we could. Also, move just on. because you enjoy it doesn't mean it's not racist. <laughs> really, um, I want to get to another point which you reminded me of, which actually was about the song. One of the things that makes the film dull, I think, is the use of music. Right? Mm-hmm. If you think of that song and how often it's replayed, and you know, every time there's a murder, you come back to the refrain of you know that mm-hmm. song. Uh, I just think that kind of sonically, in terms of arrangements, kind of, it could have just been made more interesting, more dramatic, more, the variations, yeah, could have drawn on different characteristics of each scene. And actually, there was nothing really done with that. And I just felt it showed a lack of imagination. No, I I know what you mean. Although I must say, I did think about the score because I'd I'd kind of noticed that I was enjoying it. Um, Which is not to say that I could tell you precisely what I was liking about it, but there did seem to be something fitting or something that I liked about the tone of it, the way it was used. I don't know, I, did, I enjoyed the score. But you're right that the way that the refrain of the nursery rhyme is integrated, it's like, it is a separate concern from the score. Sure. It's like, you know, yes. it's used as a story element and not a musical element. And I just thought that wasn't imaginative enough. Mm. Um, so, shall we wrap up? Were you glad you saw it? Yeah, I suppose. You know, it's... <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a work of a certain time. It's not one of the best. It's, it's like thing of, it's probably a film that's really, really easy to forget because it's not one of the great films of its era. So why I would mean, you ever watch it? But I would suggest that unless you are an Agatha Christie completist or you're a big fan of René Clair's career, the film doesn't give you many reasons to see it, in fact. No. Right. I mean, if you're only going to see, like, I don't know, a hundred films from the 1940s. <laughs> this would not figure in my list. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, so, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. <laughs>